word of prayer. Lord, we pray to you this morning, and we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the things that you have tried to communicate to us, the things that you have sent to us so that you can empower us for godly living, um, to not only be saved, but also to do the tasks which you have equipped us to do. I ask that you reveal those tasks. I also ask that you continue that good work of equipping, um, that we would understand our purpose, our goal, that we w- the waters would not be muddied by all the false assumptions that people make about what the church is supposed to be doing. And Lord, I ask that you also help us to truly understand what your plans are for us in the future, as we understand in your word that that will guide the actions that we have at the present, if our lives are in line with your word. So Lord, I ask that you help us to do that, and we know that you have equipped us for that because that's within your will. That's something within the revealed will of God that you've shown us. So I ask that you help us to do that. I also ask today as we're getting back into this subject, um, hopefully getting close to finishing this one point, that you would help us to understand part of a basic background of what we as a church are supposed to be doing. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to get back into our study of eminence, hopefully finishing the argument that we're on defending the doctrine of eminence. Now, just by way of review, the whole point of defending eminence as it relates to the rapture is that we need eminence to be a biblical doctrine in order for pre-tribulational, pre-millennial presuppositions to truly be biblical. Now, we're not trying to argue for this because we need it to happen in order for our doctrine to work. We believe this is what the Bible teaches, and that's why we, where we extrapolate our doctrine from. But because people disagree with the result that we come with, which is that we believe that Jesus could come any moment for the church before the tribulation is going to happen, people attack different parts of our doctrine that they disagree with. And the main uh, issue that they, and which should be evident by the fact that we've spent 20-something weeks just defending imminence in general, um, the main part they disagree with is the idea that Jesus could come back at any moment. So that's why we've really been investing the amount of time we have on this. I know it's kind of heavy. There's a lot of all-encompassing statements that we're trying to make as we're defending this particular point. But the reason we're doing it isn't because we think we need to do it in order to have our doctrine. It's not because we're on shaky ground and we need to establish the boundaries of what we think biblical doctrine are. It's because so many people don't like what we have to say about Jesus coming back at any moment. There are people that have lived their whole lives expecting the Antichrist. There are like expecting us to go through the tribulational period. And as early as the very early church, just a few generations after the apostles, which we'll get into when we look at that particular objection, um, which is, I think I even have it listed here. Yeah, the last one of the bullet points, which is that people argue that this is a brand new doctrine that the church never believed in. Um, Again, we'll get into the nuances of that later. But as for right now, this is one of the main arguments people have against it. So that's why we've taken the time that we have to summarize who Israel is, her past, present, and future, and now, finally, who the church is. Once we've 
gotten through figuring out what the church in Israel are, then we have to look at what their future hopes are. So that's really what we've been trying to do. That's one of the, uh, the main purposes of this particular part of the study. And it's, it's often one of the issues that we have to really entertain, I don't want to say entertain, but interact with on a large basis as people attack us. Um, because no matter what fancy argument they heard online, the, these opposers that I'm theorizing about, it will always, not always, but most often come back to this one question, which is that, what's so special about the church? Why aren't we going to be in the tribulational period if the rest of the world is going to be in it? So that's why we've been putting the time into that. Now, just again, by way of review, we started that by figuring out who Israel was. We looked at how she began, the covenants that God made with the nation Israel, the promises he made with them, and then the conditional if-then covenant, which then guided um, them coming into the kingdom, coming into the fruition of those unconditional promises. And we noticed that over time, we noticed their failure to live up to the covenant promises. We looked at their judgment of dispersion as a result of that. We also looked at a separate judgment, which has been the regathering and preparation for judgment, which is kind of, we'll call that the stage we're in now, if you, if you want to look at it that way. And then we looked at, which was quite a bit more fun than thinking about two-thirds of a nation being destroyed, was the restoration. And we looked at the promises of her restoration, which would come to full fruition in the kingdom. Now, we understand that there are many specific purposes of the tribulational period, but the one that pertains specifically to the nation Israel is the purging of the rebels and the bringing through and protecting through of the remnant who would ultimately be the people whom God is able to bring forth the promises he made to them. So again, nothing to do with Israel. You could be as anti-Semitic as you want to be, but at the end of the, at the, end of the day, those things are going to happen because God needs them to happen in order for him to be a truthful God who made promises and will keep his promises. And that's the basic summary of who Israel is. Again, several underlining reasons for why the tribulation will have to happen pertaining to Israel in particular. So that was Israel. That was our, our two-step process of defining Israel and then defining what her expectations are as far as the tribulation is concerned. So the second step is what we started last week, which is defining the church. Again, the basic presupposition of this entire argument shows that I'm considering them distinct. And so what we were working on last week is we were looking at the natural distinctions within the church. Now, we looked at some quotes from Charles Ryrie as well as Lewis Berry Schaefer, just kind of summarizing different things that would be anticipated. Now, as again, as a reminder, I like to start when I'm explaining who the church is, looking earlier to the church. Now, there are people even within dispensationalism that kind of miss the mark on this one, where they will actually say that the church started with Jesus, with, and Jesus was building his church, which an, argu an argument could be made that Jesus was building his church before the church started, but the church didn't start until the promise that Jesus made to the church, which we're going to be getting into today, actually came to, 
again, full fruition, to use the term for the trillionth time today. Now, we looked at last week a lot of things in the upper room discourse that pertain to the church. Now, we did not go through all the verses. We would have spent the entirety of last week probably on the top eight of these if we were just doing it from a time perspective. But just to give you just an idea of the grand, uh, massive information that is given in the upper room discourse pertaining to the church age, that was all new truth that the disciples had no knowledge of. There was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit before the church. And even when the Spirit would indwell people, it was always for a purpose, and it was always temporary. I mean, otherwise David wouldn't have prayed, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Saul lost the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I mean, all of these things, it wasn't necessarily something that would be forever. And there wasn't, and there, though there are truths that pertain to the Holy Spirit in a different kind of relationship than they were accustomed to in the Old Testament, it was always in re, uh, relation to the kingdom. It was always in relation to the fulfillment of maybe the new covenant and things of that nature. Um, so this was all new truth. This was all something that the disciples, the nation of Israel, had really no knowledge of up until this point. So what God was doing through Jesus's ministry in the upper room discourse was he was revealing a lot of these things in seed form, in smaller form, in summation form, prior to a more thorough unveiling of that truth, which is a mystery in the church age. So that's why I like to start there, because we start getting a few of the ideas that are really hammered down and emphasized by the ministry of Paul and Peter and so on in the New Testament. So that brings us to kind of where we left off last week. We were actually looking at the book of Acts. So if we could actually turn, we'll turn to Acts chapter 21, verse 28. I believe that's kind of where we left off last week. So if we could do that. So in Acts chapter 21, and just to make it so that this is taking me longer to give people the chance to actually get to their Bibles, I'm using my Bible instead of my fancy fast app just to try to cut down on the time to make it so people can actually get there before I start reading. Um, what I'm saying is you're welcome. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. So anyway, Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 28. It's, we'll actually start in verse 27. And it says, When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel! Come to our aid. This is a man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law of this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Again, what we're trying to accomplish here, just to kind of put us back into perspective, because it's kind of hard to do it when we're just reading a random verse, is I'm trying to demonstrate over the New Testament that there is still after the beginning of the church age, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail, a differentiation between Jews and Greeks. And we're, we're leading to a point with this. Obviously, everybody in this room knows that there is a distinction between those two people groups. But what a lot of people will say, without knowing church history, without looking into the things, without looking into the writings of the New Testament or church history, is they'll try to take a few verses out of context to try to show 
this idea that the church and uh, or Israel and Greeks, there were, all the distinctions disappeared. There were no presuppositions of natural distinctions. Uh, the only people that really argued that were the Judaizers. I mean, they make these arguments to try to make it so that these national distinctions were gone. What I'm trying to demonstrate is even through the writing of the New Testament, and we'll, again, these are just a few verses just to show they're not synonymous. Um, we'll get into this in a little bit more detail later, that they were, in fact, not the same people, and they were never considered the same people. So if you could turn to Romans chapter 10, we're just going to read verse 1. We're just going to read a few verses and then go into our main bullet points. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. Okay, well, what's the context of that? Who's them? Why is he praying for their salvation? Well, if he's talking about a them, then it is in addition to someone else that he was talking about prior to this. Who is he talking about in chapters 5 through 8? You could even go before that. He was talking about Jewish and Gentile believers, the church. And so he's making a specific distinction here that we're going to be getting into later, talking specifically about the nation of Israel. As if them, these people, if there was no national distinction, he wouldn't be singling them out in Romans 9, 10, and 11, talking about the past, present, and future of Israel. Um, he would have no reason to do that. There would be, again, no reason to do that unless Paul as we're going to be getting into later, I, I'm going to keep saying that because we have a lot of information to cover. Um, unless Paul had some sort of biblical expectation that the Jews were going to be restored, that they were going to be restored to belief, to faith in Christ, be restored to their land, actually have the promises that he makes reference to in the beginning of chapter 9 of Romans, and expecting those promises to actually be fulfilled. Again, we can't emphasize that enough. There's a lot of information here. I'm just trying to summarize these ideas as we go into it, and then we're going to hammer them out into detail. So if we could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that's where we're going to pick up next. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just towards the end of the chapter, we'll actually start at verse 31 through the end, where it says, Where, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all in, to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Because again, what is he actually saying? Now, some translations mess this up and will say, uh, Oh, where is it? They'll say either to Jews or to Greeks, even the church of God. Like they'll, they'll change it a little bit uh, from a, what I believe is a theological perspective because they're trying to make it so that these aren't actually distinct. But what you'll notice is that Jews and Greeks and the church of God are all distinct entities. In any case, we'll get into that later. The question that we have, I know we're moving back to Romans chapter 9, um, is in the midst of all of these things, in the midst of everything that happened with Jesus that we looked into, everything that happened with the Jews, everything that happened with the Jews saying, this king that God sent us, we don't want him. 
in the midst of that, in the midst of their denying of the king, crucifying the king with the Romans, and all of the things that were attached to that, does Israel have a future that's distinct? Did she lose her blessings? Has she been divorced from God, as a lot of people will assert? The Bible tends to actually give a lot of information about that. So we're going to, again, in summary form, we could just read starting in verse 1 of chapter 9 and get all the way through <laughs> verse chapter 11, um, or the last verse of chapter 11, and we get a pretty good summary of that. But I'm just wanting to pick out a few verses as we go into this, and we'll revisit those a little bit later. So in chapter 9, um, again, you can ask a questions with an expected negative answer. Obviously not. Paul's very, very emphatic about that in this particular chapter. So starting in verse, we'll start in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4, or verse 6. It says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are all children, because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Now we could go into a lot more detail there, but what he's essentially talking about is a distinction between the believing and unbelieving parts of Israel. Not all Israel is who the promises are actually going to be fulfilled through. It's actually, if you look at history and if you look at the future, what the Bible describes, it's always through the believing remnant of Israel. Um, the promises pertaining to the destruction of Israel, the dispersion, the two-thirds being cut off, those are technically not talking about the believing remnant specifically. Um, but what I'm getting at is the question that we need to be looking at as we're looking at that is we need to understand the distinction between a believing and unbelieving part of Israel. Because it is through that believing remnant as we look forward in the verses that are going to follow that we're actually going to be seeing those promises fulfilled. A little bit to your right, if you look at chapter 10, it says in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, who's the them? Well, that's the Jews that were talked about in Romans chapter 9, is for their salvation. But he's not just talking about the Jews, he's talking about the national Jewish people, the nation of Israel. It says in verse 2, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It says, and if you move over to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 
7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at, at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And that's the point that we're trying to hammer out as we're looking forward. Now, starting in verse 11, it says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. To make who jealous? To make Israel jealous. Because again, they're seeing their blessings being essentially used by the church. God's giving those blessings to the church to bring them to jealousy. Because again, it's to invoke a specific response. It's to it's discipline to invoke a specific response. So in any case, we'll keep we'll keep going. Verse 12. Now if their transgression, their denial of the Messiah, and so being the church being brought through that is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Again, it assumes that there's going to be a future fulfillment. That's, that's really what I'm trying to get in there. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might prove to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy and the lump is also, then the root is holy and the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of the Lord to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Continuing on, verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. This is the covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what we're looking at here is that Israel is not only not robbed of her blessings, she has a future restoration in mind by the God who made those promises. Now, as we looked at a few weeks ago, those promises are something that are going to largely be fulfilled in the kingdom. 
Though, what you'll notice is that Jews are not barred from being members of the church. They don't lose their national Jewish distinction just because they're members of the church. They come just as any Gentile would come to be in the body of Christ. Now, moving on, a few things that we need to know. The church is not even largely, the church is completely unrevealed in the Old Testament. There is no scripture that says anything about the church. And part of the reason for that is because the New Testament calls it a mystery. Now, we've gone into a lot of detail about the nuances of the word for mystery. It's vastly different from that of which we believe a mystery is. Now, mystery doesn't, again, and, and this is one of the bigger critiques of dispensationalism made by people who have not studied dispensationalism, is they'll assert this idea that God, we think the church is God's plan B. We, we knew, based upon, again, our privileged position in the chronological part of time that we're in right now, that God had always planned on the church. God had always known Israel was not going to actually do what they were meant to do. He always knew they were going to reject the Messiah. He still gave them a genuine offer of the kingdom through the Messiah, again, which they rejected. But that doesn't mean that God didn't know. Again, it's just a mistake about foreknowledge. They just don't really truly understand the idea of God being outside of time, being able to look at time. Um, or, again, if God knows something's going to happen and he's God, he must be causing it to happen. Like, that's part of what their presupposition is, largely. Especially if you get into covenant theology of the reform side of things. Like, that's kind of where they're looking at it from. They're working under a presupposition that they've never biblically proven. It's largely what I've been looking at recently. But what I'm getting at is even in the midst of that, they can't argue that the church was in the Old Testament. They'll use one word from one speech translated into Greek from the book of Acts and Stephen's speech to try to prove that the church was in the Old Testament. Again, uh, we'll get into why that's dumb later on. But in any case, um, not to get too conceited, let's go to Acts chapter 1. That's kind of where I think is a good place to start in the New Testament, looking at what the church is. Now, we could start in Matthew 16, 18 as well, looking at Jesus' promise that he is going to build his church too. But I think this is a good place to start. So if we could start in verse 1, we'll make our way to verse 11. It says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gather them together, he commanded them, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. Again, We'll get into that a little bit later, but that's one of those promises we saw in the upper room discourse, the promise that he was going to send them a helper. Anyway, we'll look at that a little bit later. Verse five, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It's not a real kingdom. It's something in your heart. Oh, crap. It doesn't say that. So it says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epics which the father has fixed by his own authority. But you, as in what? It's not going to happen yet. But he's not negating their expectation that there's going to be a physical kingdom and that he is the king. Again, super, super important to look at. Again, I'm going to read that one more time. Verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. <clears throat> and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking at him on a cloud and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky when he was going. And behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Again, that's where I like to start because that's really the groundwork, the foundation that will ultimately come for the church, that promise that he is going to be sending them the Holy Spirit, again, is what is largely going to be uh, equipping the church for what she has to do. Well, what does she have to do? Well, as we looked at before in the upper room discourse, basically everything on this list, and this is a summarized list. I actually had to combine some things to make them fit linearly in my in my slide. Um, would be impossible without the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that. Jesus also knew what he had in store for the church. So when he made that promise that you are to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, he was basically, again, doing what he promised to build the church. And it started through that. Now, moving on, we're going to go to chapter two of the same book, and we're going to start in verses 37. It says, starting in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were, uh, heard what? Peter's sermon. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their pro property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Now, we skipped over an important part where they actually got the Holy Spirit. But what I'm trying to show is that they were getting the Holy Spirit at the point of faith. That's really what was happening. 
at this point. And it was being dealt through the apostles at this transitionary time in church history because this was a new, it's, it's not technically a new way for revelation to be given because in large measure, God gave revelation through a human mediator and he was doing it through this 12 person human mediator called the apostles, the apostleship. They were the authority because God was using through them to give revelation to the church, to equip them for ministry. And so God had to establish their authority. God had to establish that their authority was in fact biblical. Because if we had somebody coming here that said that they were an apostle, which we understand can't happen at this point because we understand the nature of what an apostle is, these people who were given all authority to have revealed scripture, that authority was not just something that they were telling people they had. God was not only designating that authority to them, he was showing that they had the authority by doing miracles through them that only God could do. Because again, God was trying to show and demonstrate that this was in fact correct, that this new work that God was doing was in fact from him. And the way that he did that was by giving them basically what we would consider to be superpowers to equip them to be able to do that. Because it um, showed that what was they were looking at was authentically from God, which again, if you look back at history around the time of Jesus prior to him and after him, there were a lot of false people coming in saying they were the Messiah. The characterizing difference though, was that they didn't die, stay in a grave for three days and rise again. And when they gave revelation, it wasn't accompanied by miracles. It wasn't accompanied by things that only God could do because I mean, if you look at the Bible, I mean, I'm in Acts, you have all of this information. This is a very short summary of the history of the world. It's very short. And it's, it's not trying to give us an all-encompassing book on history. It touches on history, wisdom, literature. It touches on poetry, touches on historical narrative, as well as uh, provisional works. But at the end of the day, what God is showing is he's showing himself working through history Every time he does something new, it's never just somebody saying God's doing something new. It's always accompanied by God making it authentic and showing that it's, a, that it's authentic. So that's all he's really doing right now through this church, this brand new body of believers that we're looking at. Now, if we go to Matthew chapter 16, that verse that I referenced earlier, starting in verse 18, we see that first moment when Jesus was actually announcing his intentions with this church. Because again, what is the basis of this? Christ was talking about how he was the rock that his church was going to be built on. And he said in verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, the rock that he had just described, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Moving on, kind of of the same token, if you can go to Ephesians chapter 1. Which would work better if I didn't skip over it. (laughs) 
go eat popcorn galatians ephesians <laughs> that's that's usually my my means anyway so you didn't need to know that so chapter 1 of the book of ephesians starting in verse 20 it says we'll we'll start at yeah verse 20 which he brought about in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So again, what we're trying to get here is that this is, this is a new thing that God was doing. Jesus was the head of the church and the church was his body. That's the point that I'm trying to make. And we're going to be taking basically every one of these bullet points and smashing them together in order to get a basic summary of what the church is. We actually see that early in the chapter where it talks about how this was a mystery. But we'll, we'll get into that later because there's a, lot, there's a lot in there. So moving forward into the same book, starting in verse 7 of chapter 4. All the way through verse 12, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in the hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led cap- captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Because again, that's what's something that God was doing. But what you'll notice is it doesn't say, when, when does it say this started? When is it inferring that this work started? Is, is it talking about some time in the past? Is it making kind of like a chronological landmark about some time before all these things happened? Or is it happening at the point of the Holy Spirit? Is it happening at the point of faith? Again, there are a lot of pieces. It, it doesn't say specifically in Ephesians chapter 7, verse 1, that the church started because God gave the Holy Spirit at this point in time. We actually see that later on in the book of Acts. And in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 11. Um, but it doesn't give us that little, pe- that big story in one specific summation of a verse. We actually have to extrapolate that from the revealed scripture given to us in the New Testament. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at, is if you were to read all of the New Testament, you'd have a pretty good idea of what the church is. It's not hard to get that information. So what we're trying to do right now, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show that this is a distinctively new work of God. This is something that is new. This is not something that uh, God had revealed prior to the moment when he announced that he was going to build his church. Again, that doesn't mean that Jesus is like, all right, the uh, 
Israel didn't do what we were expecting them to do. So we're going to have to just get this under wraps. We're going to have to figure out a way to make this work. Um, This is something that he always planned because, again, it is through their rejection that the world is blessed. Because what you have is you now have people that aren't a nationality, that aren't from a specific nation. You have people from all nations, all peoples, all tongues that can then go out and spread the gospel, that can be equipped for ministry, that have a specific mission. And again, as we're going to be getting into over the next couple of weeks, a specific expectation of the Lord's return in every generation of Christians, whether they were pre-tribulational or post-tribulational, they always expected the Lord's return in their generation. Again, we believe pre-tribulational is the way to go as far as being a or having a biblical understanding of the future as far as expectations are concerned. But this is something that every generation of church, the church had, and that's why Jesus did it that way. If you think you're the last generation going into the tribulational period, meaning like I think right now, and I'm going to say this because I think every generation has, I think we have more reasons than the last generation, just like the last generation had more reasons to believe it than their last generation, that we're a lot closer to the things that would need to happen in order for the tribulational period to start, in order for Israel to make a covenant with some mediator um, that we're learning about quite a bit in church, in our study in Revelation. We're getting a lot closer to that point right now. That being said, how ought we live our lives? If we knew that we could be raptured at any moment, How are we supposed to live? Now, that's part of the reason that we're looking at this. Now, if you think that the uh, tribulational period is going to start, I would argue, again, and we're going to hammer this out past the point where we're even comfortable talking about it more. We're going to be arguing for the rapture in our sleep. Um, But if you're expecting the Antichrist to come and the tribulational to come, like what's what's your huge motivation right now to start spreading the gospel? You have a motivation because even if your eschatology is a little bit messed up where you're expecting to be in the tribulational period, you are still understanding this general great commission that was given to the church, Um, which just goes to show that the Holy Spirit did a great job of inspiring the New Testament that you can miss out in one area and still hammer a different area correctly. But at the end of the day, that's why we're trying to be as precise as we can with the study. In case you wondered, we're, we're not going to be getting much farther today. Um, but I think this is really important just to kind of keep us into perspective as we're looking at these things. As we're looking at the differences of what the church is, like where do you start? What is the church? Church is a body of believers that we're going to be getting into quite a bit. And part of the reason we're doing a summary of this is because we just spent two years going through the book of Ephesians. And I don't need to reiterate everything Kurt already taught thoroughly when we were in the midst of that. So as we're looking at these things, just keep in mind, like that's the general focus of this particular argument. That's why this matters. That's why understanding who the church is matters in relation to Israel. That's why it's important to make a differentiation because our goal right now in lieu of the fact that the tribulational period is not going on right now, is to basically save as many people as the Holy Spirit is able to do through us. The goal is to equip believers to be able to go out into ministry. 
to be able to be witnesses to everybody so that everybody who comes up to us and we're able to interact with can actually have a biblical understanding of who God is. We have a drastically different ministry than we would if we were expecting the tribulational period to happen. I'm expecting to get raptured because that's the promise that's given to the church. So my actions follow that expectation and change how I interact with people in my workplace. Um, the things that I do when I'm driving, calling customers, when I, I, I'm an electrician, so I see a lot of customers. Um, how I interact with the customer would be, I, I would hope it wouldn't be different if I wasn't expecting this. But what the Bible says is that the tribulational period is going to happen. We know things are coming into place in order for it to happen. And we know he promised that we're not going to be part of that. So the basic understanding we can get out of that is we ought to be living our lives in such a way that we're not going to regret how little we did for the Lord on earth for the rest of eternity, which again, an argument can be made whether or not you're going to regret it or not. Um, but in any case, it's something we ought to take into consideration seriously. So we're going to be learning a little bit more about what the church is and the fact that Jesus is the head of the church, that we are the body of the church, the dynamic that's presented there, the dynamic of authority that we have that's a little bit, little bit distinct um, from Israel. And once we figure out what that is, we're going to be looking again at review, uh, what we've already gone into a lot of information about, which is what can we expect about being in the tribulational period? Are we expecting to be a part of it? Is it going to do some goal? Like, is there some goal that the tribulational period performs in the church like it does for Israel? Those are all things that we're going to be touching on. It, it doesn't. Um, we're going to be getting into that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the promises of not having to go through the tribulational period. Again, Lord, if this were something we were just making up, um, that would be absolutely terrible. It would be a lie to the people in the congregation. But thankfully, Lord, we don't have to stretch. We don't have to come to theological conclu conclusions and try to fit them into your word. We're able to just look at your word and know that you have made promises to Israel. You've made promises to the church. You made a promise that they're going to be saved through the tribulational period. And you made a promise to us that we have been justified, that we have been set apart, and that we are blood-bought saints, that your blood covers a myriad of transgressions, an innumerable amount of transgressions that we have, could, and will commit in our lives. We're grateful for that. I ask that you help us to understand our place of blessing and to also understand that you didn't do this for no reason. Lord, if you just wanted to save us and take us to heaven, we'd be raptured at the point of salvation, but that's not your goal because there's still a lot of people who are not saved. We also understand, Lord, that there are a lot of people that have crippling false assumptions about your word and about the promises that are there and that there is a role that we have as the church to fix false beliefs, to fix unbiblical understandings about the future because our understanding that you're going to be taking us out of the way is a very motivating factor to be able to spread the gospel. But likewise, Lord, if we had that, if we didn't have that, it could also be a crippling assumption if we had a different false presupposition about what we thought you were going to do. So Lord, I ask that you be with us. I ask that you help us to keep that perspective. 
as we're going into the world in our daily lives, as you are the one that works through us as we walk moment by moment in you in faith. Um, I'm grateful for that ministry that you do through us, and I ask that you help us to truly understand the blessed position we have now. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.